Hey gang, welcome to Big Brother and the Hodling Company, a podcast about music and Web3 and trying to fend off Big Brother. I'm a Keegan Voice. Today I spoke with Simon de la Riviere, a builder, musician, and creator of all sorts. Simon co-designed the ERC20 Ethereum standard. He invented bonding curves and is now working to produce new science fiction using some Web3 mechanics through his business, Untitled Frontier. In the past, he also spent some time in the music industry, pioneering the first smart contract royalty payments with Imogen Heap at Ujo Music. And he introduced one of the first music non-fungible token or NFT collectibles in 2017 with the artist RAC. And all of these threads wound their way into our time together. So I hope you all enjoyed the conversation. Here we go. Hey, Simon. It's great to have you here. Awesome. Great to be here. I'm excited. To kick off these things, I always like to start at the beginning. Um, and, uh, you know, I would love to hear, like, when your relationship with music started um, and then work our way forward from there. Well, I grew up in, in a musical family. Um, mm. my, my father used to play guitar. Um, my mother, she was in, th- in, in musical, she was in musical theater and did ballet and dancing. So it's like quite a musical family. My sister played piano. My older brother also was in a band, played guitar. So there was always music around. And from a young age, my parents encouraged us to get involved with music. So, you know, from get, getting lessons to play the recorder to piano lessons to get, eventually guitar. Um, and eventually just, you know, being at like a teenager and like, this is like, the start of the 2000s and suddenly getting access to internet and then suddenly also, mm-hmm. you know, now paying for the software, but back then as a teenager, mm-hmm. <laughs> pirating some of the, yeah. the production studio equipment to play around with and learning the tutorials and so on and just making beats and like figuring things out. Um, and from there, it was just like a passion. You know, it's like I, I also grew up in a family where my parents were like, like if there's one thing they want to do for their kids, not it's not to just dis- not um discourage them from listening to whatever they want to listen to you know mm. yeah free reign and so coming up into this era where music was more readily available you could make music we can even share it and stuff like that i just started getting into music and music making and it was a form of expression um i've always been a creative person and ex- have explored like different avenues of cre- creating things and music was one of the big early passions for me it was just like learning music going to live gigs um, absorbing it, uh, playing music, hearing music being played at home, uh, both by my family and also just over the stereo and whatnot. So yeah, that's where, where it all started. Cool. Awesome. Thanks for sharing. I'm curious, uh, you know, I think that's a beautiful sentiment that, you know, you were in a music family that, that encouraged you to explore, you know, listening to whatever types of music that you wanted explore instruments you know all of those things i'm curious what what your parents were listening to and what you were first exposed to and then when you first started to diverge from that that like musical home that they created for you and then what that uh, that's that that's interesting i mean so <laughs> my parents would would they used to play when we had like barbecues or whatever you know obviously back then um, also being in South Africa, you didn't necessarily have access to like a big wide distribution of music. So you kind of mm. had access to like the popular ish music of the day. And mm. so, you know, my parents play like the Beatles 
Um, and I particularly remember like my, my, my dad was really into like Leonard Cohen. So we would like listen mm. to Leonard Cohen. Um, what else? Um, stuff I remember is like, you know, hits from the nineties, like Mike, Mike, the mechanics. Also my, cause we, my mom used to take us to musicals and stuff. We also listened to mm-hmm. like soundtracks. So like, mm-hmm. like Tarzan, um, nice. Toy Story. Mm. Um, but that's the kind of stuff she enjoyed with the kids, uh, Lion King soundtrack. Um, mm. so that's the kind of stuff that would play, um, in, in the background. So it's like, it's, it, it was uh, like also in the animals, um, you know, eyes of the rising sun, that kind of stuff. Yeah, sure. Um, um, and yeah, so my, you know, my dad grew up playing guitar and like learning guitar. And so like we, he would also play some songs, um, Peter Sarsted, um, bunch of those kind of stuff. And, and what was the second part of the, the question? Like when you, when you first started to diverge or have an interest in going outside yes, right. of that. Yeah. I think a part of it also came from my, my older brother and my older sister, because they had their own music tastes that were independent of, they were at like more, obviously more pop music taste. Right. So mm. that wasn't music that my parents were listening to. So, mm. you know, my sister would come and go, this is great new song. It's from Wakefield, <laughs> Right. And I would be like, this is a great pop track. Uh, <laughs> and my older brother was like, this was nineties. Right. So grunge was in corn mm-hmm. just came out with their hits like mm-hmm. metal and nice. grunge. And so like, mm-hmm. oh, this, 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 this hits, you know, this is, ooh, this is like, you know, it's, it's good music. And so that's, you know, as teenagers starting to diverge and obviously the stuff that was then popular for our generation, like then is like, you know, then stuff like Linkin Park came out and new metal. And like, this was like new and different music, um, like rock music, um, you know, sort of listening to Linkin Park, Breaking Benjamin. I think the, mm-hmm. one of the big bands at that era that like really made me delve, I first me represents like becoming a super fan and like obsessed with this band like going into online forums like reading and talking with other fans was was muse mm-hmm. and just being obsessed with this band they, they had such a fresh sound and they it was just a mixture of harmonics and stuff that just really made me love and fall in love with music um and yeah that's where it kind of diverged started more into rock music and then eventually creating more into electronic music once the sort of EDM era came around, um, and then just from there going to that rabbit hole, you know, further deeper into like electronic music, just discovering stuff like FX Twin and like mm. uh, Boards of Canada, you know, nice. um, ambient music. So yeah, mm. and then obviously then once you actually because the thing about what's exciting with electronic music was also that you could if you had like the production studios, it was easier to recreate that sound. Than having mm-hmm. access to a recording studio to recreate the right. rock sound, right? right? So you felt like you could, especially if like, oh, all the music that's being made in America and Europe and the UK, but you're from South Africa, it's like, oh, I can actually make something that sounds as good, but I don't necessarily have to have access to a studio or a recording studio to create that sound. Hmm. Cool. No, totally. That that makes sense. And uh, yeah, yeah. No, I appreciate that. New metal was. Uh, was you know one of your routes away that was also one of mine <laughs> yeah yeah, <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> um, as well. yeah good stuff yeah yeah totally yeah i i mean new metal is actually having a resurgence right now there's like a renaissance right? thing that's that's yeah. that's happening which i yeah. i appreciate i can't help i can't help but appreciate <laughs> <laughs> all the millennials are going 
Nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's get our old corn records and slipknot out and, yeah. you know, headbang a little yeah. bit again. Or like, or like one of the bands, it's also like has a big resurgence. It's like Deftones. Right. And, yeah. and it's all from TikTok, right? Because it's like, they, they have this, um, specific tone to their music that's really great mm. for short snippets right mm. and that's why it's like mm. oh it's become popular on tiktok because it's this it's deaf dance is an aesthetic sound right yeah. <laughs> so right. stuff like that getting popular again yeah it's kind of refreshing because you know so many creators are are intentionally creating sounds to be short form snippet content for tiktok it's nice to see something mm. that wasn't created for that actually being utilized right right yeah you know for this purpose um yeah, so I want to take a step back to something that you said, kind of the first band that you really became attached to in a different way at a different level was Muse. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm curious, like around when that was, I guess, relative to the technology that was available to you and how you pursued you know, deepening your relationship, you, you know, with the band and other people who were fans of the band at that time. Mm-hmm. So it's like this was when I was like fourteen, fifteen. Um, you know, one of my friends had they they because obviously the only access to music really at that point for me was this was like in the early two thousands as a teenager, and um, we only had access to dial up. I only got access mm-hmm. to like broadband when I was eighteen, right or nineteen, mm-hmm. and so dial up was the only thing. So the only place you could get your music from was like what is popular in the charts, go to the music stores, go look what's there. And then, you know, MTV and stuff was still around. So, and like mm-hmm. local music channels. So that's where you got your stuff. And so, but, so if, but if one of your friends brought some music, they're like, dude, listen to this stuff. It's really cool. That's how you got into that stuff. So one few friends started listening to Muse and I was like, this is awesome. Or like they would have like this, like, you know, uh, a mixture of like a bunch of songs. And one of them was like Muse. And I was like, this is great. I want to listen to more of this band. So where can I get it? So you get, got it from friends and whatever, trying to find it. And then once you got, became a more of a passionate fan, you would actually go try and save some money to go actually go buy the actual CDs in the stores. And so I bought all the CDs. I bought all the like live DVDs, like just to watch the stuff. Cause obviously again, I can't watch the stuff on like dial up modems. Like it's possible. Right. So you had to go get the, the, the live DVDs to go watch the, the live shows and stuff like that. Um, until broadband, um, um, came around. So yeah, that, that's, that's how like the, the sort of relationship deepened and the rest with the technology. Um, also once, once like you could get access to more forums and like the internet started getting cheaper and the, maybe slightly bit faster and so on. That's when I started going to like the, the online forums um, and reading what people are saying, getting excited, um, you know, because once a new album comes out, there's all these teasers and then like maybe like they're playing snippets of new songs live and you would participate with mm-hmm. all the fans and stuff. Um, so right. that, that was that was really exciting just to feel like, oh, damn, like this is cool. You can actually be a part of this this community and participate mm-hmm. through through this format and also just finding fans on social media and so, and so on. I mean, this was like, this was the great era of Web 2, you know, it's just actually yeah. being able to find the people that like the stuff you do. Yeah. So that, that was cool. Even if you're just a kid from South Africa. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> totally. The more, the more organic days of Web 2. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, um, yeah. I was, I was doing a little, I was doing a little bit of LinkedIn stalking on your profile <laughs> and, <laughs> and I came across what I think was the first thing that, that you entered in your, 
you know, in your work experience was this thing called tweakly.fm. Oh yeah. <laughs> and and I was really intrigued because it it, it was like some in, it was like an integration with last FM where you yeah. can actually take some of the statistics and the metrics and expose them to social platforms. And I, I, it's, it sounds really, it was like in 2010 or something, I think. And uh, it sounds really ahead of its time. You know, this like intersection of music and social is still something people are trying to figure out. Yeah. So I'm curious, I'm curious uh, it, it, it to hear just about that project in general, yeah. what, you, you know, what happened to it. Oh, uh, that, that, I think that was the start of everything for me. Um, I think <laughs> during the, during, cause that was 2009. So that was when I started university and mm. there were these summers where like nothing was happening and you were just stuck at home. And I used that time to, to learn coding and just make fun apps and stuff. And obviously that era as well was like the start of like the, the, you know, platform or platform era of web two, you know, mm -hmm. people were making opening up the platforms to applications. They call them like mashups. So you would like mash up two apps together to mm. combine the data. And it was like this promise of this public web that you can just take data and like mix and match them and so on. And mm. so I was playing around and it was like, I really love, I mean, I still use LastFM to this day. <laughs> I, I loved LastFM then and I love it now. And so with LastFM, it was like you, you record your music, the, what you're listening to, independent of your specific um, platform that you're using. Mm -hmm. And um, I was starting to use Twitter and I was like, oh, Twitter just released like the ability to build apps for it. And I was like trying to think of things, something that would be fun. And I was like, well, I share my music a lot on Twitter. So I was like, let me just make this automatic as like a first app, like the app the combined last of M with Twitter and like every week it would take your top three listened artists and just automatically post an update to, to Twitter. And yeah, called it um Twiggly FM, like Twitterweekly.fm. Oh nice. <laughs> and it was it was really interesting era because back then OAuth didn't even exist yet. And I think it was started by by Twitter, right? So um I literally had to store people were giving me their passwords. Wow. <laughs> and so I was store. I had to store them plain text. That was the only way this stuff worked back then. I was like, it's so absurd to think now in this era of the web where you go like someone was giving you your passwords. Like just, <laughs> yeah. I trust you. Here's my passwords, right? <laughs> yeah. And and in plain text, right? Mm, yeah. That was really interesting because I was just like a newbie coder, like trying to figure out how to make the do stuff with the web. And I built it, and I said, here's this thing. Like try it out. And because it had this built-in viral loop where every week there was like more stuff being shared and then new people signed up and every week more stuff was shared and more people signed up. And then it was this, this viral loop that was just like, once it started, it just kept running. And I I actually ran into a lot of problems as a result because it grew virally from there. Like um, every, it was just like one PHP file that was like running the script every week. Mm -hmm. And I, it was all on shared hosting. So my shared hosting provider like got put, like pissed off at me. Like they're like, you're, you're like, what are you doing? Like you're ruining this, the hosting service. <laughs> and then I was like, I don't have any money. I'm a student. Like I mm. like, I like, what do I do now? And so I tried to move the, the service to it's to a dedicated hosting provider. Uh, but I had to raise money. So people donated to the thing, but then I completely failed because that also didn't work out. And it was just like this mess. I was just like this. This thing was growing much faster than I thought it would. Like, at, I think at its peak, you know, it was, it was like hundreds of thousands of users sending like millions wow. of updates over wow. the course of a year. Like, this was, 
that become very popular. And then um, there was a guy that 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 started um, seeing this, and he goes like, "Yeah, I'm also going to build this." And I was like, "Can you? I, why don't we just work together?" Like, I don't know how to do any of this stuff. Like, I'm still <laughs> learning. Like, please just help me. We can share ownership over this thing. And so for quite a few years, there was a guy Scott Wilcox. Um, he ran the project basically. He built it, um, added like different different social media, Facebook, Tumblr, all the all the rest. Um, there was also a period where I think Last FM wanted to buy it, Weekly FM, and we actually had discussions oh, with wow. them about it, but it didn't work out. I think I I was just so new to everything. I had no idea how to negotiate or do the stuff at all. So I was like, mm-hmm. pointless. Let me just like not not continue with down this rabbit hole. Um, mm. But so the platform survived for quite long. And then I think a year or two ago, they got, I, I, I just said, you know what, like, I, I, this, I started this, um, but I haven't been running this for like nine years. Mm-hmm. Like I thought Scott did like, it's your baby, man. Like mm. I, I can't claim ownership of this anymore. Like, and so then he eventually sold it to another guy that took it over. Um, but then literally this year, due to Twitter's API changes, they right. shut the project down. And right. it it was a really interesting experience because it 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 progress of the entire application. I mean, this was like the the four hundred and seventieth Twitter application ever. Like this is one of the first Twitter applications ever. Mm. And it it actually its lifespan was like a summary of how the web changed, right? Web 2.0 mm-hmm. comes out super exciting. Like OAuth doesn't even exist yet. People are happy to even give you your passwords. That's how little they care about how important Web 2.0 is to like Twitter changing its API, to like yeah. becoming a more popular project, and then eventually ending up into like death because now all the platforms are changing. Reddit is changing. Twitter is changing. All the mm-hmm. platforms are closing up their APIs. They're charging right. way more. The walled gardens are going up. Yeah. Yeah, that era of the web is. is gone it's changing um yeah. and that's what got me into into crypto is like that change but yeah so that's that's the history of weekly fm it was a really <laughs> fun exciting pro- project and like you said i think there's still value there in in like having a platform that's more social i i always mm-hmm. look at like i use spotify and i always like lament mm-hmm. the fact that there's poor social context in spotify like the first streaming service i used was audio mm-hmm. and what i enjoyed about audio was there was a comments. You can, could go read what people are saying. And it was great to go. Now to get that context, you have to go to YouTube, right? right. That's where people are commenting, really. Right. Um, or wherever else people are. But that's like the main venue. Like, or maybe TikTok to a lesser extent. But YouTube is like, oh, if you want to hear what people are feeling about a song, you go to YouTube comments. Mm-hmm. Anyway, so I'm rambling more. By <laughs> no, that was great. Um yeah, I mean, I agree with you. Uh, it's it's like a you know this topic is at the center of a lot of the work that that I do, and in this you know frustration around not having a more social space for something that is music focused, um, and just seeing you know all of the context and the emotional experience that people have around music abstracted away from the music itself, and that's mm-hmm. you know you know that's really detrimental. And then. And, you know, coupled with that is, you know, to your point, like, like the API changes that a lot of these, you know, huge platforms that are centralized are, um, are starting to do, uh, you know, is in, 
and now all these walled gardens is 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 kind of the perfect segue to the importance of open source technology and decentralization. Um, and would love to hear a little bit about how you made that transition, you know, in your head, because you did it, you know, I think a lot earlier than a lot of other people. And talk a little bit about kind of the beginnings of Ujo music and how that came to be mm. as well. I think the, the underlying thing for me is, is like, I, being a creator, I suffer the problems of the creator. So there's sometimes a lot of stuff I think about is like, if these are problems I am having, like what, what is, what is a broader issue going, going on here? And like, how can I help solve some of those problems? And a big thing being in South Africa was, um, stuff I also did as a teenager was I made games and just having access to dial-up modem and zero access to any of the financial technology that was being bought at that time, like PayPal or other stuff, I couldn't sell any of my games digitally. Um, mm. as a self, as a, like self publishing, right? You, mm. the only way was to enter into like publishing agreements or whatever. And that was a big frustration. Like I, I could see people were making indie games and selling them. And I was just like, I, I don't know how to do this. I can't, I can't figure it out. And that, that was a big frustration. And so, um, Coupled with eventually like discovering Bitcoin um, and and seeing the potential for you know cross border payments and easier right. payment technology, um, and then also eventually seeing how APIs were starting to change around 2012, um, um, and being frustrated by it, especially Twitter. Um, I was I was wanted to work with a technology that had the promise that if I'm going to invest time and effort into this, that there's at least more of a belief that this stuff will stick around, right? So that's what I saw in blockchain technology. It's both as a payment system to support creators, but also as a platform where whatever we build with this, um, we have more reasonable trust that this will stay around. Um, the APIs will continue to exist. And because I was so passionate about music, you know, with Weekly FM, I was still making a lot of music back in, back in um, 2013, 2014, and so on. The, the first sort of uh, project I built in the crypto space was with my brothers. We made like a service where it was like a simple idea, just um, pay Bitcoin, get a digital file. You know, that's mm -hmm. as simple as possible. Um, Obviously, the market wasn't there at all, and we had to run all our own infrastructure. We had to run all our own Bitcoin nodes and whatever. So it was kind of difficult to to spin this up. Um, but that was like towards that goal, right? And so mm -hmm. um, experiencing the difficulty in like the platform itself, like working with Bitcoin, trying to make it do what you want to do. It's like it's then in in 2014 when I really got into this technology and like the promise of it when I discovered Ethereum and realized this is both an ideologically um, more friendly towards developers, but also practically friendly towards developers. So it both the things that when they say cumbled stuff, and this was the perfect timing for me. I was like, this was exactly what I wanted from a technology. And so I dove um, in head first, and because I was so excited about digital media, creators, music, that's when, you know, started experimenting first with musicians. And because mm -hmm. being a musician, I, I knew the problems of the musician, you know, back then, like, it was just like, put your, put your songs in SoundCloud, 
and like hope you go viral and like, participate <laughs> participate in that way but like mm-hmm. even even like participating in in like digital media sales was still also difficult right because they were you could you could the iTunes and stuff like that was available to yes um, uh, Americans but not really as easily for South Africans so that 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 was still you know part of the the desire to work on this technology um and so that transition really started from there it's going okay well it was both a desire to use the technology for creators both still being interested in music and then um starting one of some of the first experiments with teams out of consensus so you know i at the end of 2014 i i joined at the beginning of 2015 i joined consensus one of the first employees and part of the first work i was doing was both sort of helping lay the groundwork for the infrastructure, you know, so I was working on like token standards, stuff like that, but then also working on the music side, actually making products people want to use. So in 2015, just after Ethereum launched, we did like the first, I think it's probably one of the first like actual used smart contracts, not just playful, whatever. We did like the experiment with Imogen Heap where it was just a demonstration of using smart contracts for um, royalty payments. But essentially... Here's a system to demonstrate an automated split that once you buy the music, it automatically split to different contributors and it was transparent and public. You could see how the money went to different parts of the whoever made up this track and, and made it. So that's how the transition happened. And then it's how, you know, Uja started was with that simple experiment. Like, let's actually demonstrate the technology and show how this can be useful for musicians. Cool. In my mind, still one of the most exciting use cases, you know, about this technology is like the automated splits that if not for the legacy system <laughs> and, you know, the issues with metadata that exist today could, could, would feel like a very natural transition. Like, yeah, let's just do that. But it's obviously more complicated than that. Yeah. The rabbit holes deep. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, one of the things that I always hear about Ujo music is like, oh, this is really cool thing that was just ahead of its time, you know, and that's the, that's like often time the way that I hear it you know, kind of framed. And I'm curious to hear your perspective as someone who was part of the project so intimately and watched it grow and ultimately decline and just kind of get your thoughts on if, you know, is that the case? Was it too early? Uh, yes, I, I, I think I think that's a big contributing factor, but I think part of that is that when you do something that's really early, part of your job is to educate people mm-hmm. um, through your product or through other means to explain why this is beneficial, right? And because you're also building on a technology that is self-growing, like Ethereum in itself back then, it's like, you know, there weren't a lot of standards or contract coding, like wallets, you know, MetaMask, I think Ujo was one of the first applications that had like a built-in browser wallet, right? Mm. It's like, this was like new thing. Like we didn't know how to give people access to the stuff. Like, were you supposed to run your own node? Like, so the part of the problem of being early is like you, you have to figure out how to essentially prioritize. And that's really difficult. Like, you don't know what, what is the most important thing to focus on. Um, because on one side, you're like, let me focus on the product, right? But if you're not building the proper infrastructure, people are going to arrive at your door and they go like, I have no idea how to open this door. Like, what is going on here? Why is there this engine in front that I have to kickstart and then like 
dump some fuel in it's wet and buy the crypto somewhere but where am i buying crypto what's this yeah. what's this stuff so it's like a browser wallet but what if the browser wallet is insecure you know it's like so this it's just like a lot of this difficulty in prioritizing because like one of the big sort of rifts we often face was are we building infrastructure for people to build on top of this system or are we building product infrastructure and that's the difficult thing that we have to like had to try figure out infrastructure related things like 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 you said like metadata right that's always a persistent problem in the music industry it's like what were we building something that other applications were going to use to solve their metadata problems mm-hmm. or were we building a product that we wanted to give to new creators to earn money mm-hmm. uh, from their music their connection to their fans and whatever so there's that's that was the difficulty really is figuring out how to prioritize and some days we were going in one direction and the other direction and then not really going anywhere at all or mm-hmm. like spending months trying to incorporate some new infrastructure and then suddenly like no one is building with that stuff anymore so now it's like did we just waste three months of development time here so mm-hmm. that 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 was just like really difficult it's like and you know for that matter that's why when i started i thought of frontier i was like i'm gonna do as little infrastructure development as possible just focusing mm-hmm. on products as much as i get so yeah mm-hmm. that that was like the difficult part really yeah makes sense it feels like you did a lot of the you know kind of necessary trial and error to create precedence or, or at least the beginning of you know of some standards so that other people wouldn't have to do that in the future which you know yeah. super important work we learned a lot and then, and a lot of people looked at the failures that we experienced and learned from it so but mm-hmm. that that's always the, the the gamble you take right but right. for me that's what that's that's the joy i get from playing with new things is like your failure is a lesson for others and i think that's still super meaningful absolutely so if you were you know you know in reflecting what was the you could distill you know distill the failure that is most important most salient uh what what would it be the thing that you think other people who are building an on-chain music today should still be paying attention to If if there's one thing, if I would go back and redo this, um, it might be like a bit more like cheesy, direct, like startup-ish advice, which is, um, you know, like, like it is a cliche, but get product market fit, right? Mm. You know, Mm. if there's people that use your product, talk to them and understand why they're there, right? And like, and like iterate from there. I think the fact that we focused a lot on infrastructure um, was smart because that's what Ethereum was. Like it was infrastructure development. And for the most, most of Ethereum's life, like even now still a lot of de- development effort is spent on infrastructure development, like layer twos and what, whatnot, right? Or zero knowledge boosts and these, 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 these things. And so the real core advice is just get as quickly as possible to making something that people want to use and then iterating from there. And I think, um, it is obviously more difficult in, in the blockchain space because part of what you're building is something that you want other people to also use. Um, and that's where like a big dilemma comes in. That's really difficult. But it's much e- let me put it this way. It's much easier to go from a successful product to building infrastructure to going from infrastructure and then building successful users of the infrastructure and having successful product users. Um, and so 
Yes, even if you go like, oh no, like we have to like port all the, the data to new systems, or like, oh, we we're like used hard coded smart contracts that is not going to be used anymore. Like, you still have something that that solvable problems some somehow. Even if it's like, oh, it's going to cost us five hundred thousand dollars to like move all the data from the smart contracts or whatever. If you have a company with users, you can get that money. You know? yeah. So. Yeah. That that really is like the key thing. I think it's just as fast as possible get there, and we often get really easily inside of our heads when we do this stuff. And sometimes it's just because we're really passionate, right? I, I was passionate about Ethereum and blockchain infrastructure. I was still passionate. Of, you know, I was still doing like smart contract auditing uh, for fun. You know, <laughs> during that time, like uh, doing the music product stuff. So it, it, it's really about focus and just going, this is the one thing that needs to work and get there mm -hmm. as soon as possible. Um, and, and, and if it's not working, move on, you know, keep iterating. Um, but that's like, that's cliche startup advice, but it, but it's the reason it's cliche. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a truth to every cliche that really resonates. You know, I've been thinking a lot about even still like the, you know, this sort of chicken and egg problem between infrastructure and application. And you know, kind of the fallacy of, of if you build it, they will come. <laughs> um, and yeah, that still resonates. And I think that's still such a hard, you know, still such a hard lesson for people to understand, because, like you said, like it's really interesting. You you know, it's you're in this thing all the time, all day. You understand the problem way better than everybody else. You understand the product that you want to build way better than everybody else, but uh you know being willing to be flexible in what that product looks like how it turns out and letting other people dictate the behavior of of you know that evolution is is hard you have to give up you know some of the control when you're you know so concentrated in the, your belief yeah absolutely there's something else i also remember now that was quite difficult and like and i think still today it's like outstanding or it's like it's it's still something that 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 product designers in in the space still think about, which is um, what we struggle with sometimes. It's like how much do we hide of this blockchain system? How much do we abstract away, right? Because there was a, early on, it was like a lot of stuff like people not going to use wallets. They would want to use credit cards, like all this kind of talk about like abstracting away all the stuff and like hiding everything in the background. And it was this cliche of like. Yeah, you use a website, no one knows you're using a server kind of talk and whatever. Um, mm -hmm. But on the other side, it was like, yes, that's true. But I think part of the value of the system, using the system comes from the fact that you realize why this this sort of infrastructure is different to just a database stored somewhere in Silicon Valley, right? Mm -hmm. There's a reason why. And so it was this, there was this difficult trade-off between going, should we show like the guts of this engine to the user? And nowadays we kind of know like, yeah, people are actually okay to do certain stuff that in the past we were told they wouldn't do, right? Mm -hmm. so wallets, like looking at block explorers, that kind of stuff. And maybe that's still the early cohort of users. Maybe it still will be abstracted more and more away into the future. But that was kind of the difficulty in like the, the design trade-offs. And to me, it's like the one thing I always thought about that product design problem is that um, people do care about the engines and the guts of, of something, but they use that as a way to to justify their decisions, right? Mm -hmm. So if you go, if you go like, I'm going to buy a new car, right? 
10% of people who buy a car like really care about like what engine is in there and like this kind of thing and that kind of thing. But for most people, they go like, I'm buying the car. Now I need to make a decision. And that's when it's like, if you talk about the engine, it's a way to justify to yourself, okay, this engine is better than that engine, even though I've actually no clue how an engine works at all. But mm-hmm. like, you know, this sounds nicer, you know, or like, how do I choose between this iPhone and this Android or whatever? It's like, oh, but that thing is more megapixels or like better lens or whatever. Even though they your day to day, you can't actually justify. If someone goes and tells you right now, it's like, why is this actually better? You might not be even to be able to explain it. And so in that sense, it's like, Showing the guts of the system is a way to make people feel and realize, oh, there's just something else happening here, even though I can't necessarily describe or fully understand it. Mm. But subject subject to change. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I think that's a really interesting balance to try to to achieve because you know, to your point, Web three, you know, saying the blockchain, these things that have kind of become buzzwords at this at this point, but. Uh, even worse, like Web three. It's like, what is that? What, what is that? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's it's like when something can mean anything, it doesn't mean anything at all. It's mm. it's like you know when indie used to mean something in music, you know, right? Sort yeah. of the same, you know, kind of idea. Um, but you know, for people to understand, there is like an ethos attached to it uh, that that can make your product you know differentiated from a lot of the other things that are happening. Like we're doing the exact same thing on the surface but our data is not being stored in a database in a centralized server somewhere in silicon valley it's you know distributed across you know the the ethereum blockchain um so there is something too that you know to your point of like if if you elevate that enough so that people understand you know the value and benefit that they're getting from this new technology without making it like so rigid that it feels you know that it feels off-putting, and that it feels like you know, like you know, like there's a wall in front of you. Like I have no idea like what an NFT is. I don't care enough about it to go use your, you know, your product. Um, I don't know. You know, it's an interesting juxtaposition and like an interesting marketing question to think about. Like, how do we actually talk about ourselves when we're building on this thing? Even like the word NFT, right? I remember. When we started started out, I think you know, Uche launched also one of the first music NFTs, right? This was mm-hmm. 20, 2017. But we we just called it a badge, right? Or digital mm-hmm. collectible badge. Right. Right. Um, and it was it wasn't even the NFT standard. It was just like the the old ERC twenty token fungible token standard. Right. But we had a picture for it, and like we even got Etherscan to add the picture, and like even a MetaMask, if you add the token, you could see the picture. It was supposed to represent the same thing you would get from buying a CD, you would get this representation of the thing that, that, that you bought. And back then it was just like, no one called the stuff NFTs. They were just called like collect, uh, collectibles or um, no one tried to popularize NFTs because again, that was like this feeling of like, no one's going to call this NFTs because what are you saying? A non-fungible token? It's yeah. like an anti-word yeah. relating to something. <laughs> Everything is non-fungible. It's yeah, fungible yeah. things that are the weird stuff, yeah, right? Yeah, true, true. <laughs> right? Yeah. And so it's like, what is going on here? And um, and then if you could see some of the Ujo blog posts where we're talking about when we launched some of the, the badges stuff, we we say digital collectibles because we were like, this is how people are going to understand it. But then NFTs started becoming more popular and then everyone started calling it NFTs. And that was like a really interesting lesson in like, how you describe things because 
digital collectible does not entirely encompass why this is a new thing. Like mm-hmm. Farmville has digital collectibles, right? Fortnite has digital collectibles. Right. Why is this new? And having an entirely new name to that encapsulates all the new context is the one that got successful. Right. right. And it kind of reminded me of the era of the MP3, right? Mm. Because people started calling songs MP3s because the format allowed the it was so different from what it was before that you right. now could share it with people on an easy basis that that became the name for the music, like what MP3s do you have, right? Right. And and then eventually once the streaming era came around, now it calls the stuff MP3s and when I was just songs. So who knows, maybe in the future we come to expect that digital collectibles can have multiple containers from blockchain containers to like Apple containers to like, Valve con- containers or Epic Games containers, whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, but I was also interested lesson in, in going like, yeah, you, you can try as much as you can to make this as easy as possible for people, but then this random technical term becomes a thing that people adopt. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's strange. And then and then after that, like after NFTs like blew up, um, you know, of course there was there was a lot of pushback to it eventually because it, it was associated with some of the uh you know worst behavior that that happens yeah. within the crypto space um you know like a lot of speculation a lot of over financialization of like that specific aspect yeah. of the token um and and there have been a lot of organizations that have now reverted you know away from using nft yeah. to saying you know, like on-chain token or digital collectible even yeah like i've seen digital yeah. collectible again and 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 at that point it no longer is differentiated from any other type of digital collectible mm-hmm. um you know there's some that still like use on-chain in some capacity but it's an interesting sort of evolution or you know the evolution of of this terminology that we're still trying to figure out how to talk about with people yeah. but there i since we're talking about music it's like music genres as well there's always yeah. discussion about what is the music what is actually in this music genre or like yeah. when music genres get subgenres, but the subgenres subsume the name of the, the the primary genre and then everyone's mad at each other because that's not <laughs> that genre this is yeah. actually this genre it's same yeah. same, same thing yeah it's true it's it's a you know i guess a lesson in like classification and you can just get more and more granular and sometimes it's helpful and sometimes it isn't and i guess maybe that's the lesson here like some sometimes yeah 100 percent. sometimes it's very helpful having new names to describe things Mm -hmm. sometimes it's exclusionary sometimes it's like it's it's unnecessary yeah yeah one project I, I noticed that still uses the word NFT is is your current project, Untitled Frontier, mm-hmm. and, and and would love to hear a little bit about the transition, kind of away from Ujo Music, and then you know the birth of Untitled Frontier and what it is exactly. Yeah, um, you know, as I mentioned before, like I'm a creator at heart. Like I've 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 made music, you know, made games, made websites. Uh, wrote novels i know it's like i enjoy creating things and i kept trying to figure out like how do i focus on this on on this like how do i how do i combine this into something that makes sense because i i I got like frustrated with myself and not knowing what i should be focusing on 
because I find these things, all these different facets of creating and creation so interesting. And I realized there's like a thread that ran through all of the stuff that I enjoy and it's actually storytelling, mm. you know? So like, uh, when you're making a startup, right, you have to tell a story about why this matters. When you're standing on stage and you're doing a talk, you're telling a story. If you're playing music, you're telling a story, you're trying to share something about how you feel about the world. If it's just, I want to make people feel happy or like I am sharing vulnerable things. Uh, if you're making a game, you have to tell a compelling story. You know, if you're writing a blog post, you have to make sure that people understand the context of the post before they get into the meat of this, the, the, the article. This through thread really was mm -hmm. storytelling. Um, and so I was like, I want to continue figuring that out. Storytelling is my main focus. And so, you know, it was for four years at Consensus. Um, and then I left in 20, uh, early 2019. And then I was like, okay, like, let me take a bit of a break, figure out what I want to do next. And so for the next six months, I was just like trying to take a break. And then Somewhere in 2018, I had this idea for a book that I wanted to write, and it never kind of went away. And so June 2019, I was like, okay, actually, I'm going to start. I'm actually going to write this. I'm going to try this. I'm going to write the novel, self-publish, get this out the door. And it took me a year and a half. Luck um, luckily, <laughs> I guess, uh, part of that was during the pandemic, so I could actually just focus mm -hmm. on finishing it. I really enjoyed the process. Uh, it was. It, I just really enjoyed like battling with this this story for like a year and a half and it actually reminded me a lot of the stuff i was doing you know token engineering token economics and stuff like that which is just like you're constantly juggling with di different incentives from people characters the world they're in and so forth mm. and from there i was like i want to continue doing this this is great i want to continue building stories writing stories and the great thing about that was like I could incorporate my other passions through this, right? So with Antara Frontier, it's like we're currently just doing a simple premise, producing short science fiction and then selling NFTs as sort of a merchandising relationship with the media. So um, it's like go watch Star Wars, go buy the lightsaber, come read mm -hmm. our short fiction, buy the digital quote-unquote lightsaber, right, from mm -hmm. the story. Mm -hmm. um, and, and learning production process, learning the how everything works, learning storytelling, becoming a better editor, producer, showrunner, all the kind of skills that I need to improve. But with Untitled Frontier, I can still do, I still make music. Uh, you know, I produce the audio nar narrations. I do like very light, like scoring on mm. the, on the audio dramas. Um, I can, you know, play with music there. Like I do writing. Um, and then I create the art for the, the NFTs, like, and, and it's coding. So I can, I get to code again. Um, so it's just all this mixed bag of stuff that I enjoy that I can merge. And cool. so, you know, I often tell people that, that Antara Frontier is like a Venn diagram of a publishing media house, uh, an art studio and a, a tech startup. So it's all just merge those three things together <laughs> and playing with it in different formats. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, learning, you know, learning, learning as much as I can, um, mm -hmm. while still just telling stories. Yeah. Yeah, no, I love that. Um, so how, you know, how exactly are NFTs involved? What's the importance of channeling, you know, through this project, the blockchain? Yeah. So, um, like I mentioned, uh, it's like a merchandising relationship. So I wanted to try... I, I didn't quite know how to 100% do it. So I, I, for 
each short story that's been published, um, I've tried to mimic essentially how traditional merchandise works, mm-hmm. right? So when something is release, released in at cinema, you know you can probably go to a store and go buy like the t-shirt or like the figurine or whatever. So there would be this period where the product is available. Mm-hmm. So what we did was we created um, sort of memorabilia from the stories um, as generative art. So anyone that's also unique to blockchains that you can do this variation, right? It, it, in traditional merchandising, everyone has to buy the same figurine or the same t-shirt, but here right, you can right. use generative art to create a similar thematic product with unique variations. So everyone feels like they're getting unique, unique variation when they buy. So for a four week campaign, while the story is, has been launched, uh, people can, buy um an nft and it was this was like before open editions were like super popular as like a, as like a distribution format for nfts we did like generative open editions so we started this stuff in 2021 um and people could come pay like 20 to 30 dollars for an nft which to me was the product range of like merchandise right you that's what you would pay if you enjoyed something maybe right. 20 to 30 bucks now it's kind of difficult because like the market has become less hype um, mm-hmm. and the blockchains also become more expensive, mm-hmm. which means that twenty thirty dollars is it's it's being priced out. I have to actually consider moving the stuff to uh, layer two stuff. But again, you know that this this comes back to that problem of like the product right, infrastructure right. dilemma. Um, right. But now it's becoming serious enough that it's like okay, like you can't expect someone to buy something worth thirty bucks and they're paying a thirty bucks transaction fee. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of yeah. it doesn't make sense anymore. Yeah. Um, so that that's the current format, um, the primary format. I've done some other experiments and some other short story formats and stuff, but that's like that's been the primary format. Um, mm. And the goal has been to write six stories in this format, and story five is close to being done. Um, oh. And then story six will be the final one in that format. But there was like a commitment to try it out. But I think after that one, I'll probably try to do things a bit differently, experiment differently. I think there were a lot of lessons with this format. Can you speak, you know, briefly to what those big lessons were and kind of how you were thinking of reformatting moving forward after this next story? Yeah, I think, you know, part of the goal with this, these kind of projects is I want... I, I'm still interested in making things that allow more creators to earn a living, right? So when you think about short, it's nice to look at say short science fiction, right? So in short science fiction, um, most people who write short science fiction actually don't, they don't expect to make a living from it. Their goal really is just to um, practice, uh, write cool short stories and maybe get published in a short science fiction magazine. But that's still primarily an avenue for them to maybe get noticed, to eventually right. get like a bigger publishing contract to maybe write a novel. There's few people that then eventually maybe write, combine it into a compendium and then sell a compendium compendium of short stories eventually as an example. But like everyone that publishes regular short science fiction probably has something else going on in their life. Mm-hmm. Either they're writing normal, they're a normal writer, making write, living from being a writer somewhere, or this is this is a hobby for them. So you, mm-hmm. you expect to make maybe like if you if you get published, you probably expect to maybe like three hundred bucks to like max maybe two thousand dollars to sell your short story to a magazine, 
and mm-hmm. that's that's a good outcome you know yeah. Yeah, making a living living from this so the goal really was to say can i produce something in a repeatable format that allows short fiction writers to earn more than that 400 dollars they would have if they sold this to a magazine right mm-hmm. and so yes i would say yes it has succeeded in that sense every story that we've published so far has earned the writers more than the 400 dollars than they would have if they sold it to a magazine but the problem here is is that the business model is a 50-50 split between the nft sales between the writer and the business um and it's it's gross revenue so i'm not recouping money first and then paying the writer it's just mm-hmm. like the writers get 50 of all revenue i get 50 of the rest of the revenue so and and because the business carries all the rest of the production like i'm paying the voice narrators like i'm doing all the coding work you know the production time of such a short story from inception to 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 like launch is like three months of work three to four months of work right right and the business not making enough money to cover the costs to do that right so it's it's a question of like where do you need to improve maybe this model only works if i first recoup costs and then give stuff to the writers maybe i need to improve distribution uh marketing uh maybe i need to change while the nfts were maybe there's more traditional merchandising we can also do like sell t-shirts or caps or whatever um so these are kind of all the questions i'm asking about how to do this uh, maybe there's a simpler strategy or don't spend three to four four months on a story like you don't need to do like audio production and stuff like that mm. or generative art coding for each project like it would be simpler simpler nfts more of a magazine style approach because now it's a it's a top-down production like show running studio-like production whereas it could be more like magazine where you focus on being a distributor so that's why mm. it's like maybe i should angle more to not being a studio but more like a publisher Mm. So that's the kind of questions that's stewing in my head but i'm also like spending the time now actually like for the next few months i'm actually just writing a new novel because i began like i have this idea in my head and i'm like uh, okay, great let me focus on this different times different experiments yeah totally you know no i love that you've created this thing that that you know provides you an outlet for all of you know this kind of cross-section of all of these different things that you enjoy doing yeah, and I was thinking of a lot of, you know, a lot of allusions to music, you know, you know, of course, and the issues that you have with direct payments and in, you know, in this like constant search for trying to find new revenue streams, in, you know, as a musician, you know, extends to writers, extends to basically anyone who creates anything these days. Um, but, you know, it feels like a theme of our conversation has been evolution and, and like resilience and a willingness to iterate and just keep going. And you've been doing it a lot longer than, than most people have. So, you know, thanks for all the work that you've done to, to you know, elevate the foundation to somewhere that people can, people who are listening to this, people out there can, can continue to build from. I always try to, like I said before, if I fail at something and it becomes a lesson for someone else, that's meaningful. Mm-hmm. So I always try to um, be, I try to open source or make public some of the processes. So like, you know, when I wrote my novel, I, I wrote like three long blog posts about all the decisions I made with the storytelling. Why this story? What's the issues I faced as a first time writer writing a novel? Mm-hmm. And then I published all three drafts. Well, so if you like want to read how shit the book was, so you can <laughs> um, originally. Um, and with like the NFT stuff that I'm doing now for Untitled Frontier, like I, if 
I've been trying to publish also how I coded this stuff. People can go read and see how I made the decisions around the art and how mm. the coding works. So, you know, I try to share as much as I can to also uh, share the lessons. Yeah. That's amazing, and and it's definitely appreciated. Uh, we can we can all stand on your shoulders. <laughs> cool, Simon. This has been really it's been a really great conversation. Um, I just have one more question for you before we go, uh, that I ask everybody at the end of these. Uh, you're going to a desert island, and you get to bring three albums with you. What are they? <laughs> okay, okay. I think I have three. I think I have three. Cool, that was quick. I th you know, I trust my gut feeling what's the first topic came to mind. You should, you should. Yeah. Okay, there's one, I think, I think um, Aphex Twins, like, selected ambient works. I love that. Right that there. is one of my top albums ever. Mm -hmm. um, one Beck album. Mm. If you're trying to make me choose a Beck album, it's going to be very <laughs> difficult. Don't know which Beck album I would choose. Maybe one of his earlier stuff, maybe. Odelay or something like that. Mm. Um, and then probably White Lies. But again, if you're trying to make me choose a White Lies album, it's very mm -hmm. difficult. Probably probably Friends. Friends from White Lies. Yeah. Cool. Cool. That's my, Good that's choice. I mean, that's the immediate ones that came to mind. Maybe I'll yeah. regret those decisions. But that, that's, yeah, like, that's kind of the point of the question. It, yeah. It <laughs> is fundamentally impossible. But... Yeah. Uh, but it's interesting to see what three first come to your gut and then, you know, come out. So I, th I think it was a good trip. <laughs> Sweet. Cool, Simon. Yeah, this has been really great. Thank you so much for being here. For people who are listening, who want to follow along with the work that you're doing, what's the best place for them to find you? You can go to untitledfrontier.studio or uh, my name is quite unique. So if you just Google my name, mm -hmm. you can find me on various socials. Uh, I'm Simon DLR at wherever everyone is at the moment. Blue Sky, Mastodon, <laughs> Farcaster, Twitter, <laughs> wherever. Yeah. Everywhere. Yeah. Cool. Awesome. Uh, yeah. Well, thanks again, you know, for being here, Simon. Thanks for your time. Thanks for the work that you do and, uh, you know, wishing you the best. Thank you very much. This is a really fun conversation. Absolutely. Okay, cool. Take care. Cheers. Alright, that's it for this episode of Big Brother and the Hodling Company. I'm your host, McKeegan Voice, and you can keep up with me and all the latest Web3 music trends on Twitter at McKeegan. That's M-A-C-E-A-G-O-N. This show is a production of Decentral Media, and you can visit us at decentral.io, and remember, only you can prevent and fend off Big Brother. <laughs>